Hi, I'm Justin King, and welcome to the Blue Chip Academy. As a five-star recruit, all Big Ten corner, NFL vet, and Power 5 recruiting coordinator, I understand the emotions that go along with the recruiting process. The Blue Chip Academy is here to provide education, critical insights, and mentorship through the recruiting process for families and athletes alike. When athletes and their families have proper education and guidance, they're able to make better decisions and set themselves up for long-term success. Blue Chip Academy provides the resources and information that empowers athletes to create their own blue chip blueprint and take ownership of their careers. Blue Chip Academy exists because when athletes and their families are armed with the right information, they're able to make the decisions for themselves that positively impact their future. Again, I'll be your host, Justin King, and welcome to Blue Chip Academy. Welcome back to the Blueprints of Success interview series, providing unique blueprints, tactical knowledge, best practices, navigate the critical points in the football ecosystem so athletes and parents can prepare a plan to a career path that any athlete can bank on. So let's go. We have the first head coach at Robert Morris, or our first head coach on the show, but the head coach at Robert Morris University in the building today, a Tampa Bay, Florida native that attended the U, like, I mean, the real U, not just when cats go to Miami nowadays, but like... When they were to you, man. Coach was named the MVP of the 1988 Orange Bowl after helping Miami to a victory over Oklahoma for the national title. Big-time players make big-time plays, right? 14 tackles, 12 solo in the natty. Going on to get drafted in the third round in 1990 NFL draft with the Bengals, played some time with the Seattle Seahawks and some time in the Arena Football League. Coach began his collegiate coaching journey at James Madison before moving on to Liberty University, coaching linebackers, special teams. From there, had successful stops at Florida International University, FIU, South Florida, and Pitt, you know, I got, I mean, all good with Pitt. But while at Pitt, Coach helped, <laughs> helped the defense finish the top 10 in the NCAA, now entering his fifth season as the head ball coach at the Robert Morris. Is it Colonials or Colonels? It's Colonials. Colonials, man. There we go. Let's welcome Coach Bernard Clark. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Colonels are a little bit close. That's close, right? <laughs> I always get it because, like, sometimes you see it and it's yeah. like when it pops up, I'm like, did I write it down right? And you say Colonels. Some people say Colonial. And it's like, all right, nah, it's Colonials. colonials. I, no, I was, everything's out good. Absolutely. No, most definitely. Just wanted to get that cleared up, man. So, man, really cool, really cool episode to have you on. Like, one from seeing the football ecosystem from the all different, uh, no, different viewpoints. Now I'm becoming a head coach, right? Because everybody has their idea of like, oh, you know, the coach is the assistant coach and the head coach is different. Different views on things. So we just get started. Just a little, a little preface question. Getting into everything. What's your football philosophy as a head coach? Uh, it's my mission statement. To be totally honest with you, and since I've been in football, it's been my mission statement. My mission statement is to create an environment on and off the football field to continue what families have done and help these guys become better men, better husbands, and better fathers. Those are three most important things they're ever going to be in their life. But we're going to use football as a tool to make sure those things work out that way because as you know you played this game this game has molded our lives you know right. it's taught us discipline it's taught us respect it's taught us honesty it's taught us trust because you need all those things on the football field but you also need all those things in life so that's why i say on and off the football field to help them become better men better husbands and better fathers i love that because like when we talk about this at blue chip academy it's like using football as a catalyst to a career that you can bank on because a lot of times when people go through the through the football ecosystem it's always like a level of desperation, right? I need to get to this next thing. You kind of lose like the actual benefit that you get and that you can kind of propel yourself off, whether it's like you said, man, a great man off the field, uh, executive off the field, great husband and all those different things. And just growing up as an individual, right? You start getting recruited at 13, 14 years old. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. in football, you could be over 21, 22. And that's like a maturation process where a lot of things are getting thrown at you. So that's, I, uh, I love that. 
Yeah, there's no doubt. And the other thing about it is a young man by the name of Inky Johnson. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, yes. Played in Tennessee, projected first-round pick. Now he's a motivational speaker because he got a season in the career. He says this quote, and I love this quote, and I've been quoting it ever since I've heard it. He says, can you be committed to the process without being emotionally attached to the results? Well, you know and I know the process of football helps you get into shape, helps you build your mind, helps you build your body. So you know how to create a process. So that process that you use to get on the football field is the same process you can use to get a job, same process you can use throughout life. And so can you be committed to that process even though the results don't come as fast as you like or when you like for them to come? That's key because a lot of guys, when you get into football, right, it's like you can do this and you get on to practice and kind of see the results right there. But like when you transition now, whether you're trying to work, it's that same process, but like you have to be, you have to, you have to have some faith on the, like committing to the process and just keep chopping that Absolutely. wood. That's a great point. Absolutely. So now being a head coach, essentially, you know, finishing the track from player to head coach, seeing all the different, you know, nooks and crannies of the football ecosystem. What advice would you give to your 17 year old self getting into the football business? Because I think of the recruiting aspect is the football business. Once you go to college, it's the football business. Exactly what you just said. Understanding at 17 that this is a business. <laughs> that that's exactly what it is. It's a business. When you get into college ball and you play college ball, when you get there, it's all about who's the best. It's not who the coach likes. And everybody gets caught up in, oh, the coach don't, oh, they got nothing to do with that because that coach is trying to feed his family. The last thing he's going to do is put a young man out there that can't help him feed his family. And when you get to the next level in NFL, it's truly a business. Every day you're vying for your job. They're bringing someone in every day to replace you, plain and simple. So once you understand it's a business, you don't take it personal anymore. So the 17-year-old wouldn't have taken it personal when he didn't start. The 17-year-old wouldn't have taken it personal when he got cut. The 17-year-old, you know, he was taking, I wouldn't have taken it personal, but I did take it personal. But understanding now, it is a business. It's never personal. They're always critical of your performance. They're not critical of you personally as a person. So it's a business. That's the first thing I would have took from it. I I love that answer, man. I think I was like one of my critical advantages growing growing up as a coach's kid, like understanding that it was a business, like how wins and losses directly mean tied to his, what people said about my pops, whatever the case may be. And understanding that, like you said, this is a business. Don't get your feelings hurt when you're getting through the recruiting process. I used to see that would throw a lot of people off. And I'm like, okay, this is like a critical advantage. You approach it like a business. And now with everybody (laughs) talking about NIL, the bad thing, the good thing is like that reinforces that. It's a business. Mm-hmm. We start seeing market values, guys getting upset about not getting certain you know, opportunities and different things of that nature. So yeah. what Coach said, man, this is a business. I 17 going in and starting at the recruiting process. I mean, yeah, you just can't take it personal. And that's the one. I, I constantly, when we have conversations with our guys, I always start a meeting a lot of times. Hey, guys, this isn't personal. Mm-hmm. This is business. This is what happened on the field. I'm not calling you soft per se, but what you did was soft. And the way you did that can't help us win football games. So don't go home and tell your parents, coach called me. Soft. No, I didn't call you soft. I said the way you're playing is soft and it won't help us win football games. So it's not personal. Exactly. And a lot of times when people say that in football, I get a little testy when they bring football <laughs> situations to the real, like to the things like, or try to bring it to corporate America. I'm like, ah, something's got to be cut to the point because yes. it's a violent game. Things are reactive and, you know, you got to leave people out there. to You can leave people out there to dry and it's actually dangerous. Absolutely. So. Yeah, you yeah. can't be soft. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so we get into the recruiting process a little bit. A quick flashback. How was it getting recruited by the U in the 80s? You know, it was it was weird being recruited, period. Because I, I'll give you a funny story. Growing up, I didn't really watch college football. Okay. 
I was all about professional football. And the only pro team at the time when I was a kid was the Miami Dolphins. And I was a huge Dolphins fan. They went undefeated in 72 and I won another Super Bowl. So I was a huge Dolphins. So to be honest, I didn't know Miami had a team oh, until wow. 1983. <laughs> Growing up in Tampa, all I heard about was Florida and Florida State. That's all people talked about. Uh, didn't want to go to Florida because too many people liked it. And once I really found out about them, and I thought everybody talked about them like they had 100 national championships. When I found out they had none, I'm like, why is everybody excited about this team? So that was the other funny thing. Florida State, on the other hand, they started recruiting me, but then I found out they lost another linebacker, to, and then they started recruiting me harder. So I, I, as a matter of fact, I canceled my official visit to them. <laughs> and then with Miami, being recruited by them was unbelievable because like I said I didn't know they had a team and I remember in 83 when they played in Nebraska I'm like Nebraska about to torch these guys but I watched the game and I watched the team that was just unbelievable that team was and then in, when I watched them that year in 84 that season I watched how they played how hard they played I remember the the miracle game with uh, uh, Doug Flutie how long how hard fought that game was and I just fell in love with the football team so for them to come to my front door and talk to me about coming down it was absolutely special to me to be honest with you, though, the school I really wanted to go to, and at the time I didn't know much about HBCUs, all I knew about who the man was, I wanted to go play for Eddie Robinson. Uh, I wanted to go to Grambling State because of who he was right. and because of how he was winning, and he was the winningest coach. And, but I never got a letter from them. And back then, if you didn't get a letter from somebody, you just assumed they didn't know about you. So that's how the situation was. But being recruited by Miami was unbelievable. That's a, that's a brotherhood that I would never forget. I still keep in touch with those guys. We got a, we got a um, WhatsApp that we keep in touch with each other all the time. So that's the great thing about the University of Miami. That's amazing, man. When you guys won two national championships, I mean, you got to yeah. – those, those bonds stay strong when you do something special. That's why I try to tell cats, like, the goal is not really comfort and lax. It's like, you know, reaching that mountain point and, like, that grind with the with your friends and your brothers when you go through that college process, man. That's And doing it again. I mean, and, and that's the whole thing. Like, when you were talking to your pops, uh, Coach Smith, and he was talking about he just went there after the national championship, after they won the game. That's why he went there. You know, say what you want to say. Your whole thing is trying to – because. The one thing I know about Miami, at that time, we were in the independent conference. We weren't even in the conference. So it was national championship a bust for us. You know, I, I was there. I was redshirted. My record was 55-5 and five when I was there. I only lost one home game. So every year, man, we're trying to win the national championship. That's what it was all about. There was no – there was no conference championship with us. There were only national championships. And that's the, I, I love when you say that because, like, I, I, coming into a football place where you say you didn't recognize it was a business, but you get in, you get engulfed into that culture when it's like absolutely it's national championship or bust or it's national championship. And I think that does something to like I, I love when coaches kind of come from that environment. Was there anything mm -hmm. from that environment, like culture wise, that you kind of took was like this is non negotiable when I become a head coach, or when you flash back on like the culture at Miami. Absolutely. And it's been in every stop, okay. uh, Justin. That's the whole thing. It's been every stop that I've gone to, it's the competitiveness. Competitive. If, I've coached, if I've coached linebackers, we have to be the most competitive guys on defense. If I've been the defensive coordinator, we, our, our defense has to be competitive. I don't care what the offense does. I don't care if they turn it over 10 times. Our job is to stop them and keep them out of the end zone. So it's the competitiveness that I learned, learned about at University of Miami. Every day on the field, man, we were literally trying to take each other's heads off. Every day we were cussing each other. Me and my roommate used to go at it all the time on the field. Then we left the field, gave each other a hug. The brotherhood there was unbelievable, but the competitiveness there was just absolutely amazing. I'm talking about guys trying to beat guys out of the position who were the best of friends. You know, that's what it boiled down to. Uh, guys really going at each other. The competitiveness is something that I always want to bring. And the brotherhood. Right. And the understanding that Miami won five national championships. I tell everyone this. But they won it with four different coaches. 
it isn't like what Nick Saban's doing in Alabama. It's the same coach. See, it was a to me, it was a players team when I was at the University of Miami. Because when Coach Johnson left and went to the Dallas Cowboys and Coach Erickson came in, I, I asked Coach Erickson, I pulled him to the side, and everybody makes a big deal out of it. But what I said was, hey, Coach, man, if you come in here and you try to come in with a heavy hand and dominate how you're going to run this thing, you're going to get a little bit of resistance. But if you come in here and you work with us as a team and you understand how we play the game and you put what you put with us and we can put what you put with you, we can win a national championship. And that's what we end up doing. Because to me, it was a, our team was already developed. The culture was already there. The attitude was already there. And I remember Coach Evans saying, do what you do. Our first day of practice, I say, Coach, can we practice like we normally practice? She said, my nickname's Tiger. He said, Tiger, do what you do. I said, okay, it's a little different. But he saw how competitive it was, and he loved that. And then he just brought what he brought in with that fast-paced offense and the widespread offense. And our wide receivers are happy about it. Running back was happy about it. And that blended together and it won a national championship. Man, I, I mean, that's perfect when you say that. Like, even for a coach to be open to hearing that, right? Because you get that a lot of times mm-hmm. when, in college where you get the dictatorship where it's like, look, we're going through it this way. You can have players, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be, because, you know, guys are getting paid a lot of money. So you got to build up your coaching resume. Absolutely. But, like, it's that thing of working with your players. We mean, talk about the different philosophies, X and O's, Jimmy's and Joe's type coach right where it's like it's about absolutely my, about my scheme or versus the players <laughs> Miami no, better be no, about no. the players <laughs> <laughs> and that mean and that was the whole thing and but we wanted it to be about our team but we also understood and the best way to say it, I think Mario Cristobal said it well when coach Johnson there when all the coaches were there they either coached it or they allowed it there was nothing we did on our own trust mm-hmm. me it wasn't like we were like a band of crazies out there doing they knew we were being coached, and they knew what we and we knew we can get away with. That's what it boiled down to. There were some things we thought we were going to get away with, some things we weren't. And that, so it blended well together. Talent management is one of the most underrated things that coaches get uh, don't get judged on, which is like how to manage the talent that you actually have, not just maximizing them, but like letting which everybody I think the greatest, Yeah, special. the greatest guy to ever do it is Phil Jackson. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So when you're when you're going through the recruiting process, did you ever have a did you have a click where you're like, man, this is like this is serious? Like when was that moment? I tell you when it got serious for me, I was in the tenth grade and I got my first letter from South Carolina. I remember the first school that sent me the first letter. They sent me the newspaper, the school newspaper, and I got it in the mail. And they used to send me one each week. But when it really clicked for me was there was a guy on our football team, and we had a horrible football team. We were nothing <laughs> like Gateway. We were horrible. As a matter of fact, I don't know if we had a winning season there since 1993. But we're great school, great teachers, great people. But the football team, we were just real bad. But there was a guy by the name of Keith Jackson who was a friend of mine. And Keith was a senior in 83. And I remember Keith getting a, a scholarship to uh, uh, Albany State. And he got a scholarship to Albany State. And I realized, man, I can go to school for this? Because like I told you, I didn't follow football. I didn't follow college football. I was like, right. I could get a scholarship and go to school for this. And at the time, I had a 3.0 GPA, so I had the grades. I'm like, oh, I can play football and got to pay for school? So that's how I started looking. That's when it got serious for me. When I saw Keith get a scholarship to Albany State, I realized, man, if I do what I need to do, I can also get a scholarship. And then I started getting letters and stuff like that. So that's when it got serious for me, when I saw a friend of mine get a scholarship. I think that's so important to say, like you just think of like just recruiting, just what people or what prospects see growing up around them, right? Because like that sets their expectations or what they can achieve or just a level of exposure. Like for you to say that that's when it was like, all right, I can do this. A lot of people have said like, hey, I've seen this person accomplish this and do that. I, I saw it at Penn State when Saquon was there. You start seeing people like kind of yeah. deal with him like, wait, like sometimes they kind of overjudge themselves. But that, <laughs> that thing of, you know, 
hyping up your uh, yourself from seeing your peers is a is a very big thing, especially like the opportunity to go to college, right? You you saw that there was like a, a benefit to get a degree, and I mm-hmm. hey, is a, using football as a catalyst. <laughs> Absolutely, and mom and dad didn't have to pay for it. And mom and dad didn't have to pay for it. That investment. That's, yeah. that's why it's the business, man. It was like a value yes. exchange, Absolutely. like a, a monetary Absolutely. exchange. What would you say the main mm-hmm. difference is now recruiting players versus when you were getting recruited? Uh, it's the exposure, man. It really is. It's being able to be exposed in so many different ways. And I heard your uh, pop said earlier, it's more about uh, all the social media outlets. It's the huddle outlets. It's everywhere you can. You can go in and click on somebody's huddle right now. Well, back when I was doing recruiting, you had to send tape out. You had to watch game film. All those things needed to be seen before you can actually get out there. And it's the exposure of what's going on. And I think back then, my mom and dad were more involved in it as far as this is how I want it done. My son's going to do this. My son's going to do that. I think even now, a lot of the parents get caught up in the putting on the hat on signing day and they're sitting around. And everybody's excited about it. And they're forgetting that the next four or five years, this is the young man that has to be there. They're forgetting that he's not just going to play football. They're forgetting that. He needs to go there and get an education also. And so there's a lot of things that people are overlooking because there's so so much exposure. You've got the four-star, five-star, all this other stuff that goes on with it. So I think we need to get back to the basics of what recruiting is all about, and that's trying to help the young man where he's going and understand what you're about to get into. Absolutely. I love that because it makes it forces the family to fall into that family asset category because mm-hmm. that's what I always try to tell it when you see like a, there's a player and there's like assets around them, not like – a player with, you know, somebody else trying to be the person here. Cause that's when you start getting bad information and start kind of leaning, trying to direct, you know, people with the wrong motivations. And that gets kind of tricky because the kid has to live through it. The family has to live. through Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I know we're going to get into it later on, but that's the problem with the transfer portal. And I know we're going to get into that later on. Yeah, we'll talk. We're going to touch on, this, on the transfer for a little bit. Did you feel like when you were going through the recruiting process, you obviously said like, all right, it opened up your eyes to like, I can go to college and do this. But did you feel like it accelerated your maturation process? Because it seemed like you said your parents were hands-on. Uh, it did, but it didn't. Because and, and, and I'll talk about it later on. But the reason I picked the school I picked was because it was close to home. You know, So my, being close to my mom and pops was important. My mom and pops being able to come see my games was important to me. Even though my dad worked for Delta Airlines and he flew to every every game anyway, but it's one of those that was important to me that my sisters could come down and, and watch me play. They can at least play, come see six of my games throughout the year. I was three and a half hours away, so that was important to me. So it did, and you start seeing things when you first get to school and you realize you're not that big fish in that little pond anymore. Now you're in just another fish in that pond when you get to Miami. So you see it there, but it did, but it didn't at the same time. I grew up more when I got to college as opposed to getting in the recruiting process. Got it. Got it. I, I could definitely see that back then. And cause like now I would always say like, it kind of does speed up those guys when they're in high school. Cause like they got to make these yeah. business decisions. They're putting different numbers in front of them. Like how absolutely. You, you and, and, and the other thing is just like your, your pop said, it's a situation where man, we didn't get really recruited until you were a senior. Right. So, you know, it took a long process. I mean, you were getting letters and stuff like that, but as far as coaches contacting you and stuff like that, and there were no cell phones, you know, they could only call the house, you know. So, and back then you get a busy signal. So yeah. my mom and dad had to use the phone. So it didn't matter if a coach was calling. <laughs> you know, so situ- he may get a busy signal. So it's one of those situations. So it didn't really affect me until I got into my senior year a little bit. And that's a, that's also an advantage, right? Because I see a lot with like players nowadays where they get more stressed out about players around them getting recruited than actually like focusing on, <laughs> on their skills and keep sharpening because it's like, oh, Johnny got an offer. 
you know, Sam got an offer. I'm, <laughs> I'm better than both of them. Next thing you know, they're mad and not really going to go keep getting better. And it's just like, well, sorry, man. <laughs> it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't help when you got the minions around you telling you how great you are and you are better than him. And you don't know that. That young man, you may have a 2.5, and he may have a 3.5. And that's why he's getting more recruited than you are. You're just looking at the football aspect of it as opposed to looking at the overall person of the aspect. Coach, I used to, when just a jump off track, I used to work at Penn State and have, you know, trainers all across the country send me their players. Like, hey, what do you think about him? And I would send a comp who I think, like, all right, this is our line of what we think it is. And, like, mm-hmm. here's the film. Now you evaluate. Like, you, you compare the two films. <laughs> you let me know what you think. And that would be it. Like, all right, I got it. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you know, put exactly. It, Put it in there. Were you a multi, multi-sport athlete? Oh, absolutely. No okay. doubt about it. I played basketball. Wasn't good at basketball. I knew what I was going to get to college in, but I enjoyed playing basketball. Uh, had five fouls. Got all of them. Made sure I <laughs> got those every game. <laughs> and I and I threw the shot putting track. I was state champion in shot putting track. So when I got into college, I wanted to do it, but Coach Johnson looked at me and said, what scholarship are you on, track or football? And I was, right. that was the end of that. So it was one of those situations. So I ran track in junior high. Uh, ninth grade was the last time I, because back then we had, <laughs> so I'm going to make sure everybody understands. Back then we had junior high, especially in Florida, we had seventh, eighth, and ninth, or eighth and ninth grade, which was also a different part of everything. So in ninth grade, I didn't get to high school until 10th grade. So ninth grade, I was a web uh, junior high school and I ran track there. And back then it was a 220 yard dash and I was like a 22.5, oh, yeah, uh, 220 yard dash. <laughs> and I was like a, I was like a 10, 8, 100 yard dash back then. So it was, you know. But when I got to, when I got to high school, folks were running nine twos and nine ones and you know nineteen, so it was a little bit different. So I was like, let me throw this shot. So. Yeah, <laughs> but you were athletic, obviously moving around like that and linebacker. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what we're looking for now. Yes, yes, no doubt. So I mean, just random. How, did you know that you wanted to? Did you want? Did you know you wanted to coach after you got done playing? Like, absolutely not. It, uh, it really was the furthest thing from my mind. You know, I'll let you know just in May of ninety May of ninety six I gave my life to Christ. Okay. And what I did was ask for guidance. And he led me back to football. And just so happened I was a car salesman and the guy was a manager, my manager at the time, his son was a linebacker as a junior in high school. And so he came to me, he said, Man, do you mind showing my son some pointers? Because he met me he knew me from Miami. I said, Yeah, no no problem at all. I said, But let me talk to the head coach first. Before I do that, I don't want to step on the head coach's toe. So I went to the high school, met the head coach. I said, he wants me to show it something. He's like, yes. But the guy also, the head coach, remember me, Coach Hash, remember me from college. He said, but you'd be doing me a disservice if you weren't my defensive coordinator. And I'm like, I said, man, I haven't even coached football. You're talking about being a defensive coordinator. So he, he has the Miami playbook. I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> this was 1997, and I hadn't been there since 1990. And he handed me the playbook. He said, can you learn this? I was like, Oh, yeah, I think I can learn this. And so that's what I did. So my first job was a defensive coordinator at uh, Santa Fe Catholic High School in Lakeland, Florida. And what I did was I fell in love with it, not because of the X's and the O's. And people always say this. I fell in love with it because of the Jimmy's and the Joe's. Because when I had a conversation with those young men and looked me in my eyes, and I was humbled by the fact they wanted to hear what I had to say. And that's what I fell in love with the game. I was like, man, this is something I could do. This is, this is my purpose. And my purpose is like I told you before, and that's why my mission statement has been what it's been because of how those young men looked at me. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, when people like talk about their purpose when it gets into coaching is because it is interesting because some people do fall in love with it from the X and O standpoint, whether, you know, there's a lot of different avenues mm-hmm. to get into the game nowadays and it's not everyone has that story. And I think people, 
kind of give like take it for granted that everybody's like, oh, I'm in it for the kids. And like, you know, some people really love the X and O's, like the scheming mm-hmm. up, the the number aspect, the analytics part of it. And it's just when you start talking about the players and that impact on it, it's just like very crucial, especially in college, man, where you're just getting guys at 17, 18 years old and continue to help them mature through the process, like you said, is on and off the field. There's so many young men that are trying to grow and it's your responsibility to help them grow. And, and that's what I feel. I, I truly feel it's our responsibility as coaches to let them go. And if I feel like uh, there's certain situations where, and I always tell our coaches, this is this to give you a kind of understanding where I'm from, Justin, when I talk about stuff like that. I always tell our coaches is we expect these guys to know this playbook inside and out. But if they're not doing good in class, and they're not, we expect somebody else to help them. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. After your freshman year, you should know your progress towards degree. You should know how many credits you have. You should know how to register for your classes after your first year. If, we're, if the young men aren't learning these things as they grow, they're not becoming better men, better husbands, and better fathers. They're just becoming better football players. And you know and I know, it ain't but 1,700 jobs at that next level. Yep. Actually, 1,696. <laughs> but it ain't but 1,700 jobs at that next level. And everybody's vying for those jobs. So let's make sure we're helping these guys become better men, better husbands, better fathers by helping them develop in every aspect of college and not just developing the aspect of playing football. Because that's the true impactful aspect of going through the process and not just like the intent of like, oh, I'm helping build people up. It's like you're like actually giving the tools to empower them to feel confident to go out and kind of use those transferable skills, whether it's in football or something else and transitioning out and like being those, you know. Those citizens out outside of the football building. I think that's Agreed. amazing um, and key. So just like a little fun piece, how was it? Uh, did Jimmy Johnson recruit you? Yes. How, yes. <laughs> how, how did he recruit? I was, I'm just curious. Coach Johnson was um, – the great thing about Coach Johnson was he was a player's coach to me. I could always go to his office and talk to him about anything. To this day right now, I text him, hey, Coach, happy Father's Day. He'll hit me back and stuff like that because that's the kind of man he was. And even now, you know, my book, and we'll talk about my book later, yeah. I text, hey, Coach, pick my book up. And he's like, okay, Tiger, I'll get a copy of it as soon as I can. So he was a player's coach to me. That's why I enjoyed being coached by him. And like I said, Coach Johnson was one of those guys, he was either coaching it or allowing it. There wasn't an in-between. He wasn't going to let you go overboard, go underboard. He took care of everything you need to take care of. And he was a great coach, you know. And when Coach Erickson came in, totally different. Coach Erickson, Coach, Coach John, you didn't mess around with Coach Johnson. It was like, we're going to do it this way, we're going to do it this way. He said something, and I, to this day, when you talk about those non-negotiables when it comes to certain things, something I took from Coach Johnson, actually two things I took from Coach Johnson, but the one thing that really stood out is he told us, you're going to all be treated fairly, you're not going to be treated equal. And he told us that from day one. And what that meant was, if you show up late, you're going to have to run. If you don't show up to the bus on time, you're going to get left. He don't care if you're a starter, if you're a walk-on, you're all going to be treated fairly. Equal meant if you're a starter and you keep making mistakes, okay, you're a starter. You can keep making those mistakes. If you're a second-team guy you keep making those mistakes, you're probably going to be third-team or fourth-team. And that's what he meant by fairly but not equal. On the field, it's just not equal, plain and simple. But off the field, everything's fair. And we used to have this sign, and this is why I believe in what Coach Johnson said. There was this sign that went from the training room to the locker room, and it said preparation plus opportunity equals success. And I read that thing every day, and I believed in it. And that's why when I had an opportunity to start in the Orange Bowl in the National Championship game, I was prepared for that opportunity. And that's why I was successful at it. 
That's, I mean, that's, that's a very great point when you talk about, like, in, just in, in terms of a coach instilling that culture, right? Like, when you're saying, like, not, mm-hmm. it's going to be equal, but not, uh, it's going to be fair, but not equal. Because, like, I love that quote, and that's something that a lot of players get tripped up on, where it's like, hey, it's like yeah. this. And then, like, I mean, my, one of my mentors or guy I used to work with, Doug Whaley, obviously, he, uh, he obviously say he always says you know talent equals tolerance you know it's just so yes. and for players to yes. kind of understand that where it's like yeah it's not always equal and understanding where you're at on the talent spectrum like what are you providing to this to this uh, organization because you know if I heard a great story from one of your guys uh, what's the young man's name that plays with the Dallas Cowboys right now first round pick number eleven uh, from oh, Penn Michael, State Michael Parsons Micah Michael Parsons he told a story about how coach made him do the up downs at, at Penn State and. <laughs> And when he was telling that story, I heard somebody say, I mean, you're the star. Why would you do that? I'm thinking to myself, fair but equal. This this is the rule, man. The rule is this. If you don't do this, you've got up downs, plain and simple. But in the game, if he makes a mistake, of course, you're going to tap him on his butt and send him back out there because he's Michael Parsons. But when it comes to the rules of the team, it's fair but equal. So that's what it boils down to. I love it. I love it. Always talent equals tolerance, fellas. You just got to lock it in and get more mm-hmm. t- work on your talent. I mean, so we get mm-hmm. to the fun times. You're playing at the legendary U, and it's peak glory. During your time there, who was the – man, we always, as players <laughs> inside, always have that player. Who was the best – the most talented player you saw on a day-to-day basis? I kind of got two – I got two answers for you, oh, to be okay. totally honest with you, because the most talented player that I've ever been around, the most ferocious player – I've ever been around was Jerome Brown. You know, God bless the dead, God rest his soul. Jerome Brown, I saw games where Jerome couldn't be blocked by one guy. Jerome couldn't be blocked by two guys. Jerome couldn't be blocked by three guys because that's how tenacious he was in getting to the quarterback. Probably just, uh, oh, man, all around. And I had so much respect for him. That's probably why I say Jerome Brown. Jerome Brown was that guy. The next guy was extremely talented, Melvin Bratton. Melvin was probably one of the bigger backs at that time, could make you miss in in a phone booth. And he also had the speed to run away from you. But the hardest working guy at the University of Miami, and some people may say whoever they want to say, in my opinion, hands down, Michael Irvin. I mean, Mike was one of the hardest working individuals. Mike worked hard to run a 4-5. Mike worked hard. Mike was that guy that if he missed a 10-yard out route and he dropped a pass, he's staying out to practice and running that route 10 times until he catches the ball 10 times because that's what he believed in. And he did the same thing at the pros. Tell you a funny story about Mike. Now, he's told a lot of people this story. I tell him, I say, Mike, I always give this testimony on you, so I'm just letting you know ahead of time I'm giving the testimony, Mike. Right. When Mike and I were roommates, and uh, I remember Mike came back, and he had worked with his brother all summer, and his brother worked tarring roofs. You know, he, he was a tar guy. He did, he did a tarring on tops of roofs. And I remember Mike coming back, and he had on sweatpants, and he had sweat, and they had dirt in it. And he took them and he pent them on the wall. I said, man, what are you doing? And he says, I will never work that hard again in my life. <laughs> and he never has. <laughs> and that's the, that's the great. So that, that gives an idea of his mindset, of where he was and how hard he worked and how hard he pushed himself. He was the hardworkingest guy I've ever seen. But you got to remember, and you play ball like I play ball. This isn't hard work to us right. because we love it. This is what we have to do to be where we want to be. Uh, coaches said all the time, do what you're supposed to do so you can do what you want to do. So you're supposed to work out in the summer. You're supposed to work hard in the summer. You don't get a cookie for what you're supposed to do. You know, that's Chris Rock, one of Chris Rock's very stories is, 
They always want what they say. You're supposed to do that. I pay child support. You're right. You're supposed to pay child support. That's what you're supposed to do. So you don't get a cookie for what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to work hard to be a great football player. So it's not about working hard. It's about having a passion for what you're doing. Absolutely. Like, I, I love that. So we transitioned into the U. Was there a, did you mm-hmm. have a hard part of your transition? Like coming from high school, going into Miami? I think it's everybody's hard transition. The team speed at the University of Miami was unbelievable. And like I told you, I went from I went from a high school where I was the guy, and then I wasn't the guy again, and I got redshirted. Well, that was like what what's going on? So I was just like a lot of these young men right now. I was calling my mom. I'm done. I'm coming home. And my mom said, "No, you're not. You're not coming home. You know, you're gonna stay there. You're gonna do what you need to do. You're gonna bust your behind and put the position where you need to be at." So I made it in my mind after I got redshirted, I'm going to be on that bus next year. Got it. The hardest part was watching that bus pull away from the school every day, driving to the airport. You know they're going to a game and you're left behind. I said, I'm going to be on that bus going to the game next year. So that was the toughest part, man, just showing up there and realizing the team ability that was there and being redshirted. That was probably the toughest part for me. Yeah, that, that is a tough one, especially for guys coming out. You see, and that can, it can ruin guys' careers, to be completely honest with you. Like, they don't bounce back mm-hmm. from that red shirt year. Some guys get into the drinking thing. The freedom of the of the weekend can kind of throw you off a little bit. Would you say that was your welcome to the you moment? Like when you Absolutely. Got, yeah, like, I'm red shirt. I can't even play. I can't even crack the top 85. You're not, you're not even going to be the you – you thought you the dude before. You're not even close to being the dude right now. So there's no doubt. But I was in good company. I mean, Mike Irvin got redshirted. Andre Brown got redshirted. My my offensive line coach, Coach Holder, we got redshirted together. So there were guys getting redshirted. I'm like, okay, okay. But at the same time, you're still, your ego is still like, well, uh, why am I getting redshirted though? And I walked in the coaches. I coached, that's Coach Johnson. Coach Johnson said, because we think it's the best thing for you. Wasn't no long, drawn-out explanation. It was like, we think this is the best thing for you. Okay, coach, right. <laughs> you got to walk out with your tail between your legs, and you're like, that's what it is, you know? Because so, mom and dad's not going to – they're going to agree with him. It's like. Do what you need to do. Take care of your grades and do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, no, that's that, that makes that makes perfect sense. But that welcome yeah. to the college football. <laughs> hey, you're redshirted, and this is why. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you guys were. I mean, it was that was hot boy central back then in the '80s in the Miami. Mm-hmm. So, what type of NIL deals would you guys have been racking up back then? Like, do you think? The, you know, it's so weird you say that, man, because the defensive coordinator, Coach Plunge, is here at Robert Morris University. Him and I were talking about this the other day. He gave an unbelievable idea, and it's exactly what I would have been doing. Because I had a little bit of a name in Tampa. I would have probably done camps. I would have did camps in my name and did like linebacker camps and did football camps for the community in my name and did the same thing in Miami. That's probably how I would have made a much more money in the summertime. I'd have probably did that and marketed that and probably got some T-shirts and sold those T-shirts more than anything else. I don't think I would have did some of the stuff these guys are doing now because I, I didn't have the knowledge of that. You know, I don't think I'd have did what uh, Alabama's linebacker coach. I think Alabama's linebacker, I mean, Alabama's quarterback, his dad, had more knowledge of what he wanted his son to do. I think his son did. And it was one of those situations. I didn't have all that knowledge back then. So that's probably what I would have done. Yeah, that's a smart move to like kind of capitalize on where you're, where you're known, right? You're like, it was mm-hmm. like super hyper local ecosystems. You're known as the linebacker. You're the expert yes. in that and try to benefit <laughs> yeah. off of that. That's very smart and straight to the point, mm-hmm. especially in a place like Florida where it's mm-hmm. the culture of football, right? Like the U yes. South, I mean, North, Northern part of Florida, we got Florida state and, uh, Florida, I mean, becomes religion. We talked about a little bit earlier about the competitive nature and just the different personalities that you saw on the team from a day-to-day basis. I mean, you said it was a very competitive uh, like culture. Like, just from a personality mm-hmm. standpoint, I guess what I'm asking, like, how was it across the board? 
Like, were people like kind of outgoing, or was it just kind of everybody there focused on football? It just seemed like a like you know personalities across yeah. the spectrum. It was it was both to be totally honest with you. The personalities would come out on the field, but in a very very competitive way. You know, I remember distinctly in seven on seven, and Randall Hill was the first round pick by the Miami Dolphins. I remember Randall coming in, and Randall was a DB when he came in, and they moved him to wide receiver. And he was all state DB, but they thought he'd be better at uh, wide receiving. It turned out to be the best move for him. And I remember him going across the middle, and he had been talking noise to me all day because he kept catching balls in my zone. And I remember him leaving my feet, trying to take his head off. I mean, I literally went at him, and I, he and I, he caught it and went down. And I went over top of him. He got me through the ball in my face. He said, no, punk, you're not getting it. And so, and that's how we were. It was that, but when we left the field, it was still left on the field. So the competitive nature was there. But on Saturdays to us, it was like a day off. Right. Because you had practiced so hard against your teammate. It was a day off. And that's, and that's how we looked at it. And just to give you an idea, one of the guys on our scout team offensive line was Leon Searcy. So that gives you an idea of the competition you're going against during the week. So if I'm blitzing and Leon picks me up and knocks me off my feet, I don't think there's going to be another guy that I'm going to go against during that week. It's going to be like a Leon Cersei. So those are the things that we looked at because the guys we were going against were unbelievable players. So it was constantly competitive and just going at it. I love that, especially when we just started talking about personalities because you see – like best practices, right? In business, you see best practices, what's worked before. Mm-hmm. And when your basis is somewhere like Miami, where you see guys that kind of walk the edge, that are still super competitive, it shapes your outlook on kind of what a football player is. I see it from certain coaches where they might play small ball and it's like the the person that had high character, worked really hard, was like kind of their mm-hmm. their heart strength, right? Versus yeah. you might have a guy that walks that line and it's just like, oh, I, I don't understand that. Or it's just kind of mistaken for you know, just obscene talent or whatever the case may be, but you've seen it up close and personal, like where it's like, no, like Michael Irvin was the hardest working guy that I've seen. So like him being flashy yeah. or doing whatever, the case, like that's not, that doesn't shy away from you. Cause like the critical factor you're no. looking for is like competitiveness and working hard. Like, yeah. so I think that's interesting when you see, like when you're engulfed in like a, a culture where personalities are kind of all over and still very valuable and, you know, can produce wins and championships. Like, and like I said before, the other great thing about it is we had a team full of leaders, and everybody was leaders in their own way. So when you messed up in practice, I didn't, have, I didn't worry about Coach Johnson getting me in line. When I first showed up at Miami, there was, you know, linebacker Rod Carter, uh, my other roommate Tracy Waiters. Those were the guys getting me in line. Right. I didn't have to worry about the coach saying we need to do this, we need to do that. It was so funny. One of my former teammates named Terrence Harris, he said, I didn't even know Coach Exler. He said, I thought – Bernard was, I thought Tiger was my coach when I first got there because I had taken on the leadership role that those other guys had taken on when I became a senior because I believed that this is what we needed to do to win football games, just like those guys said, this is what we need to do. And like I said, it was a it was a players-run team. It was our team, and that's what we believed. Yes, the coaches definitely, they led us, but at the same time, we had to make sure everybody was in line. So no one got out of line. I didn't get out of line with Jerome Brown because I knew what Jerome <laughs> would do to me. So it was one of those situations. That letter that letter of respect within a culture is so hard to manifest and cultivate. And it's not, and like you said, you've been saying it through the whole interview. It wasn't coming from, it, it came from Jimmy Johnson to an extent or the head, but it was mm-hmm. ran from within. And that's something like, man, my 05, when I Penn State with me and all the guys got there, 
we talk about that team. And sometimes at Penn State, we get the rep because, you know, we all had this clean shave, you know, the hair. Mm-hmm. But, like, the personalities on that team were, like, all through the stuff. I mean, we had players that would kick guys like Sean Lee, you know, Paul Buzz Lesney, Dan Connor, <laughs> I mean, Mike yeah, Rock. Like, yeah. yeah, Tom Bahali, like, you know, these guys were like, there was no bull crap. Like, they were cussing cats right. out, kicking them off of the field. And, you know, I yeah, dare coach exactly. to say something to them. Like, exactly, like, exactly. So, like, and that I, was the whole thing. But the coach had so much respect for those guys and the coaches. The coaches knew those guys knew what they were looking for exactly. as coaches, and that, and that's what it boils down to. And that's and that's what I try to build, but I, I'm slowly continue to try to build it that I can trust a guy to tell another guy to get off the field. Right. Like to give you an example, when I coached at Florida International University, uh, my middle linebacker's name was Keonvis Bowie. Okay, and I'll never forget we're playing Texas Tech, and sent the sent nickel package in, called the play. The nickel didn't run the right play. The very next play, Kiki looked at me and said, get him off the field, coach. He doesn't know what he's doing. I just did this. And I told him to call the field. And that's how – and because, again, it was a player's run defense. They knew exactly what was going on. It's like, this is what we need to do. You're not doing it? Coach, get him out of here. Let's get somebody else in. And like you said, coach is like, okay, let's go. Because you trust those guys and you believe in those guys. And it's funny you say that, too, coming from the defensive side of the ball. I always kind of lean towards defensive coaches having a better feel for that, right? Because it's like guys are running around, you got got responsibilities, but you get to see people kind of make special plays. Sometimes from offensive coaches, it's like, got to be here at five yards, da-da-da. And like just kind of defense is like, you know, you're you're corralling a level of culture and a whole bunch of 11 people to go at one person. It's like, and there's, it's not always going to be perfect, but like, no. but it's, there's a level of tenacity that can kind of override and... Do those different things. Well, it's, right? it's interesting you say that. Like, whenever we have – like, we'll bring an offense, a defensive lineman in. And people think, oh, you move a defensive lineman to an offensive lineman because you're not athletic. No, that's that's not why I do it. The reason I don't do it is because of what you just said. On offense, you're told what to do. You're told where to align. You're told what steps to take. You're told which way the player is going. On defense, it's reaction. We need you reacting to what you're supposed to do on defense. And that's why with defense, it's more, hey, man, you got to maintain your gap. You can't get beat on a dig because we got man coverage. We got two man call. How are you getting beat on underneath coverage with two man? You should be underneath them to begin with. So you have to react to what's going on on defense where in offense you're told what to do, and I think that's why you see it that way. Yeah, 100%. I think it's like a good profile when we talking about head coaches in college because like just being able to trust the different aspects of a program to kind of operate and not knowing that you can't have your hands on every little piece because – you know, finding identifying those special things that kind of run, run, run wild a little bit is a hard thing to pick up. Um, so we talk about getting drafted. Get done with Miami. Obviously, you're in an ultra-competitive environment, the top, you know, program out there. Were there any surprises during that transition once you get to the NFL? Uh, weren't any surprises, to be totally honest with you. The only thing, and, I, and I'll talk about this now, and I'm sure you're going to ask the question later, but I'll talk about it now. I played two years in the NFL. And it wasn't like I wasn't a good player. I was a third-round draft pick. I'm six foot two. I was 240 at the time, and I could always hit. Okay. And, and that's what I was known for. I was from high school. It carried me through high school, you know, running and hitting people. It carried Stryker. me through college. But the thing about it, in that level, at the pro level, I was never a student of the game. And I don't mean that in the sense that I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I mean that in the sense that I didn't study film. I didn't know the offensive tendencies. I didn't know what the corners were supposed to do. I didn't know what the safeties were supposed to do. I wasn't a student of the game. And at that level, everybody can run and hit because that's why you're there. (laughs) What separates you? 
you know, what separated me from Leo Barker? And I know you don't know Leo Barker. Leo Barker played at uh, the Bengals with me, and Leo played eight years in the NFL. I think may have been nine years in the NFL. What separated me and Leo? Leo was a true student of the game, and he could run. I mean, Leo was trying to teach me to be a student in the game, but I was worried more about hanging out and chasing women and partying. I wasn't really worried about studying the film and growing the way I needed to grow as a football player and as a professional. And at that level, that's what happened. So that was the biggest transition for me because physically, I was physical enough I could do it. But mentally, I didn't make the transition like I needed to make in order to sustain a football career. That, that's so critical that you say that. It's just like everyone thinks about, oh, how good is a player on the field? But like when I remember making that transition to the NFL, same thing that you said. Like I was, I felt like I was a student of the game, understanding X and O's, but taking care of my body, I don't think I was the best, right? Like in terms of nutrition, mm-hmm. getting a massage, getting a chiropractor, and I'm a speed guy. So like when right. your tires get flat a little bit, you know, I mean, I can't be out here. It's like swimming in the water with great white sharks. Get messed up in the NFL, you know what I mean? So and I remember the same no thing, like you said, a vet said to me, man, man, Ron Bartell, he was uh, he was our top, you know, our top corner. And he was like bringing in a big masseuse. And I was like, ah, I'm not paying that much to see a masseuse. He's like, man, you go out to the clubs, you buy this, you do that. Man, you better take care of your body. And it like warped to me like, oh, you're right. Like, I got to yeah. hold this part down. Like, not just knowing the Absolutely. game and all this. Like, you get hurt. That's your fault. Like, it's not just Absolutely. a part of the game. Like, that is your fault. So that no was doubt. like no doubt. something I always look back on. It's like, man, guys, just keep your X and O's and your playbook and all that stuff. But man, it's everything outside of that. And once you get on the field, and obviously we throw money into the situation. That kind of throws another little no, no, piece into yeah. it. Did you no, feel like no you doubt. were good with your money after you got drafted? I mean, it depends on what you say good with your money. I'm tight, bro. So I don't okay. spend nothing. It's like... I, I, I still got an annuity from when I played back in 1990. So uptight <laughs> with money. I don't spend it. But at the same time, I don't know much about investments either. Okay. So I took the money from the annuity and I just put it in the IRA. It wasn't like I knew, you know, I didn't know anything about stocks or anything like that. So I guess I was good with my money in that sense. I mean, I mean, I, I'm able to get what I want right now in life. So I was good in that aspect. But as far as like knowing how to invest and doing some investments and different things like that. So nah, I'd say, yeah, I was good because I was tight. That's, but I wasn't good in the aspect of investments. Well, that's 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 great, man. As you came in as Tigers, like you said, a lot of guys coming with that kind of shifted identity. It's like oh, I finally got what I need. It's just like, yeah, you know, let it ride. But it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's, that, it's, that's 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 that's, that's <laughs> awesome. What was your first major purchase? My first major purchase was a, a SUV. I bought a Pathfinder. Oh. Now everybody was like, "Why? Why do you get a Benz? Benz cost too much, bro." Pathfinder twenty grand. I'm good. I told you, I don't spend all that money. It's ridiculous. And the only other thing I did, and I did it. I'm not a clothes guy. Like I, I would never ever spend over a hundred bucks on a pair of shoes. It just ain't happening. You know, my wife thinks I'm crazy, but it, it just ain't gonna happen to me. So my first big clothes purchase, bro, I was I felt good about myself. I bought a shirt that cost a hundred dollars. Never did it again in life. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was it like a button up shirt or something? Like a nice it was shirt? A button up shirt. Went in a, went in Macy's, saw it on the rack. I was like, you know, I can wear this. I'm gonna go ahead and put the write the check for it. I bought I'm like you lost your mind, hundred dollars on the shirt, <laughs> and I've never done it again. <laughs> that's great, man. Hundred dollars with a button up, man. Clean, and my, man. That's that's amazing. I love that. I love that. We'll do a quick. Well, now before we do a quick read, like you talk about being in the NFL and like being a student of the game, I would imagine. Like, what was the like the major difference between the U and the NFL? And the NFL? Because like, I got I got the U. It seemed like I mean, not seemed. I know it was an ultra competitive environment. Was it similar to the NFL, or was it the guys not care as much in the NFL? Uh, well, I, I put it to you this, but my first year with the Bengals, 
We went to the playoffs. So guys were playing hard. They were they were busting their butts and everything. My second year with the Bengals, like I went to Seattle for like three weeks. So I only my second I, I went to Seattle and I went right back to the Bengals. Okay. So my second year with the Bengals, we went three and thirteen. Okay. So it was that man. I'm just getting the check, and it, which made it hard for me. I'm like, man, what what are we doing? Are we trying not to win and stuff like? And it got frustrating for me because I felt like I, that's when I felt I should have been playing. I should have been on the field more. But not knowing, I didn't know my playbook where I needed to know my playbook. But I was just thinking about the fact that I'm one of the guys that can hit hard and stuff like that. So the second year was more like that. But so I kind of kind of lost that vibe a little bit of being competitive and getting after it. But the first year, it was just like it was at mine. Like I said, the toughest part was the transition of mentally learning a playbook because you know and I know and I tell guys all the time, look at me, in the NFL, it's eight hours a day of football and beyond. So you're trying to figure out what you do from 8.30 to 5. This is what you do from 8.30 to 5. You're in class. You're studying football. You're watching film. You are a student of the game. And me not being a student of the game, whoo, that was rough on me when I first got there. So that was the that transition was always tougher when it came to the mental aspect of it. Now, you mentioned it a couple of times that you didn't feel like you were a student of the game. Did you know that while you were going through that you weren't a student? Or were, like, were coaches telling you, like, man, Bernard, you need to get in your playbook? You're like, man, I know that stuff. Like, that's it. Okay. Okay. That, that's exactly how it was. I had that because I because all your life you want to get to the NFL. Wait till I get to the NFL. Wait till I, I got there. So I'm like, okay, this is what got me here. Hitting is what got me here. Let me do what I do. And they're telling me, no, you need to do this also. And I'm like, I don't need to worry about that. I can hit. And no, that. So again, well, he can hit too. So. Either you're going to do what we're asking you to do or you're not going to be here anymore. So it's one of those situations. Man, you see that so exactly a lot of the linebackers sometimes in high school, like they come from high school and it's like running, hitting, and you get to, get to college, like, man, stay square, do this. And it's like before you own the coach's trust, like they're still doing the thing in high school. Like, hey, man, this guy's doing that and he's going to run and hit. So, like, you got to figure it out. <laughs> that, yeah. But, but you're talking and about I can the say that to you now. I can say that to you now, Justin, because I'm 55 years old. But when I got cut, I was hot. <laughs> I, I was blaming everybody. I was blaming everybody but myself. You know, okay. like, they just don't think I could play. They ain't doing this. Now that when I get older, I look back. And I remember Coach Wanstead telling me this. Cause I, the last time I played for was the Dallas Cowboys. And years later, I remember Coach Wanstead saying to me when I, when I was at Pitt, coaches don't cut players. Players cut themselves. And, you know, and that's in any business. No one gets fired. They may lay you off, but if you're good enough, oh, they're not letting you go. Playing it, I don't care what it is. I don't care what kind of job it is. I don't care what you got going. If you're the best one at that job, they're going to find somebody else to lay off. They're not laying off the best employee. They're not laying off their best player. That's what it boils down to. So coaches don't cut players. Players cut themselves. And I definitely cut myself. That's a fact. Talent, is, talent equals tolerance. I remember when my career was over, I kind of knew. I mean, I always had a wherewithal. Like I said, I, I was always always wanted to work in football before I was even a player. So like my perspective mm-hmm. in the game as a player was a little – a little different. So, like, I kind of knew where I was. I was, like, getting hurt. Got hurt at the end with the Steelers. I'm like, I came home. I was like, man, I think they're going to cut me today. I think I'm going to get that call. <laughs> so, I was still mad, but it's like, ah, God, they told me the injury is a thing. So, I'm going to take a quick yeah. break and do an LIG read. One second. Hold on. One quick second. So, does your son dream of playing college football at the highest level? Or maybe just want to maximize their time playing sports? Or do you want to give him every chance to succeed? Don't be left in the dark when it comes to his future during this critical point of his football career. 
That's where we come in, introducing the Recruiting and Football Business Masterclass, a comprehensive course that walks you through the entire recruiting process and football ecosystem so you can help your son navigate the, water, the recruiting waters and identify the critical factors in making the right decision about his future. And his future is just as important as yours. We'll show you how to make sure that your hard-earned money isn't wasted on programs that, bring, that won't bring him success. During this masterclass, you'll learn how the student athletes are evaluated from recruiting coaches, how to navigate the recruiting waters, how to navigate the new normal with NIL, transfer rules, and different things of that nature. The most common mistakes are blueprint for success and 23 videos taught by me going through different things that lend to success and best practices in the college ecosystem. So we'll jump back into this episode of the Blueprint to Success. Yeah, coach. So back into it. So take me through a little bit of the, tr the process, the transition now. So you're in, in NFL, and I know you said before you got into coaching, you were selling cars. How did you get into selling cars? <laughs> well, the thing about it, and, and I guess Coach Tyler, Delbert Tyler, put it the best way, football broke up with me. So it wasn't like I left football. It was a, it was a bad breakup. I mean, they left me out there. So it was like for a year and a half, all I did was run around spending money. You know, that's what I did. And trying different business ventures. Because I got a degree in business administration, and I had been playing football since I was eight. And I heard your pop said earlier, you just don't know what you're going to do. You've been playing since you were eight. Now I'm not putting these pads on anymore. And after that, I played a couple years arena ball. But right afterwards, I didn't do anything for about a year. And the saving grace was, I remember my mom saying to me, well, babe, when you eat, your family eats. Because I ain't have a wife, I ain't have any kids. She said, so you can figure out what you want to do. So I tried a construction company, uh, tried a detail shop. I tried to even be a manager for a singing group. So I was trying all these different things, just trying to find my niche and what I was doing. And I remember one day I was like, you know what, I got to get a job. So I went to this place and they sold knives from door to door. So I was walking from door to door selling knives. And I remember walking to this car dealership. And this guy recognized me. The guy I was telling you about later on who wanted me to coach his son. Yep. He recognized me from playing at the University of Miami. And plus, I had my national championship ring because that was going to be one of my selling points. I'm letting you know I played at the University of Miami. I'm trying to. Sell. And so he's like, why don't you come sell for me? He said, if you want to get into sales, come see. He said, you got to walk around the sun all day. There's a hot sun selling knives. I'm just gonna... So I thought about it, and I went and started selling cars. And I enjoyed it for a time. And to be honest with you, it really helped me for recruiting because I'm trying to convince this person to purchase something that they may not like at the time, they may not want at the time, but I got to convince them it's what they want and it's the best thing for them. So it helped me with recruiting. So I did that for a while. One thing I didn't like about selling cars was dealing with the public. You know, you can make great money. There were months I made two grand. There were months I made 15 grand. So, I mean, there was, you, you can make some money doing it. It was just, I didn't want to do it. I, I just, it was one of those situations. I just didn't want to be there. So the transition was slow, and rough, but it needed to be made. So that's how I became a crossover. No, I mean, that's the interesting. I always talk about guys when my first transition job and how valuable, you know, I think sales and marketing is like just as a, for a football player to be able to get that skill, because as you're coming up, you're always kind of externally focused, like looking at who's pitching me business ideas. What, the, what can I do? What can I do to get on the field? But like when you transition out, that one skill that's lacking is a level of sales and marketing. Like, cause you're not really selling mm -hmm. yourself on the field. Like, no, it's what I produce. It's merit based. And like that skill is like kind of shrinks those gaps to make those jumps into corporate America or getting or working into becoming a college football coach, to be completely honest, because people don't realize like that's a professional job. Like just because you're absolutely just, just because you're a football player does not mean you just walk in to the building as a coach. That's the mm -hmm. biggest thing. So say so you, so you started at the 
go from there, selling cars, then you go into working at the high school football spot, right? Santa Fe. Yes. Uh-huh. You said that's when you found out your purpose was like, like when the way the kids looked at you, uh, it's like, all right, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Was there any other moment where it's like, all right, I want to take this further and like kind of make it a career? Like, did you ever set your sights on like, all right, I want to be a college head coach or was it kind of, I'm just going to keep feeding in these. When I first started, when I first started, I knew I wanted to go into college, but I'll tell you what really put it out there for me because as a football player playing in the university of Miami, playing in the NFL, you start thinking about how GAs were treated back in the day. So you start thinking to yourself, do you want to go through this because you start thinking about your ego and all this other stuff. So I said, you know, I'm going to try one more business venture. So I wanted to buy Domino's Pizza franchise. So I looked into doing that and I found out you had to work there, had to deliver, had to do a bunch of other stuff that you had to do. And, and at this time, I had humbled myself a little bit. So I was able to deliver pizzas. It didn't bother me. But I remembered God didn't humbled me even more. Now, I was delivering pizzas in Tampa where I grew up at a Domino's Pizza franchise, and I did it for about eight months, and one person recognized me. One person. Re- and, it, and it humbled me even more, saying, because God basically told me, you're not as big as you think you are. I don't care if you played in Miami. But they're, no one knows you. You just think. So that gave me even more to take the first coaching. I was like, college coaching is what I want to do, because when I talked to Coach Alex Wood, who hired me for my first job, Alex Wood Sr. at, Robert, at uh, James Madison University, he says it's a $15,000 a year job. And I got told you I could make fifteen grand a month selling cars. So I was like, is this what I want to do? And I knew at that point, after realizing no one knows who you are, you just think they know who you are, yeah, I can do this. And I took the first coaching job at James Madison because I knew I wanted to go sow what I had to tell young men. I wanted to go sow it into them and help them to grow and help them to be better. So I fell in love with it. And I love that because it's so interesting when you get into sports or just football in general. I always talk about that gap being whether it's a player transitioning out of the NFL or whatever, but like there's a gap when you those entry level jobs where you're not getting paid a lot of money. It has to be for the love of the game. And like mm-hmm. you see the discrepancy sometimes where different people have some backing to get those entry level jobs. And you see like kind of how Absolutely. that works up and through the pipeline of jobs at the top where it's like, okay, who's getting his, who's getting the experience at the, at the, at the beginning, and a lot of times it's because you're taking pay cuts and different things like that. We just talk about the racial disparity when it comes to the leadership positions and different things of that nature because you have to have means to take the job at the bottom. You have to really, really want to do it, and you have to mm-hmm. have a dynamic skill set to be able to provide value there. So, I mean— Well, I, there, was two, there, was, there was twofold in that, man. What really helped is exactly what I told my mom. told me when I eat, my family eats. And I'll never forget when I got to the NFL— and my father coming to me, and I know a lot of young men that are going to the NFL, they think they got to take care of this person, take care of that person. My dad took me off the hook before I even got drafted. First thing he said to me, he said, if you get drafted, that's your money. It was our responsibility to take care of you. It is not your responsibility to take care of us. If you want to give me and your mom some money, that's great. Don't worry about it. So that helped me go on with my life when I was in the NFL. Did I give them money? Yes, I did. But I didn't have to. Like some of these guys, like they have to give their parents this, have to give their mom this. My dad let me off the hook early on, so I didn't even have to think about that. So when I took this job making fifteen grand, all I had to feed was myself. And that's how my mom and dad had me thinking. So I had the blessings of both my mother and father to go and do something I love, something I had a purpose for. That is, that is a blessing because you see it a lot of times when you get an NFL member saying, like when I got there, it was just kind of interesting seeing – a lot of guys, I mean, like, I mean, 
two thirds of the locker room paying it back, right? A lot, two thirds paying it back, and the other third is paying it forward. We could like discuss who's paying it forward, who's paying it back. Exactly. But, yeah. but that's a blessing to not even have that weight on you, because like that's like being a true mm-hmm. family asset where you can kind of use the you know the, the the cushion of coming out of the NFL to take those entry level jobs. I tell people all the time, like to work in football and getting all the information I did, like. I financed it with my football money for my football career, right? Yeah, I take absolutely, it, absolutely. Taking a pay cut, coming from corporate America and all that good stuff. What was the toughest aspect of transitioning from a player to a coach? Uh, the toughest aspect, it really wasn't a tough aspect for me because I never anticipated being a coach. So it wasn't a tough aspect because I found out that playing wasn't my passion. Even though how much I loved it and I enjoyed it, coaching is my passion. And so in order to do this, but I vowed to do it differently. You know, like I said, I don't do this because of the X's and the O's and stuff like that. I, I'm, I'm a coach that truly believes that you do a system and you get those young men to buy into that system. And I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times because they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And if you don't care about them as people, they're not going to give you a hundred percent, period. I've seen some great, great, great football coaches not get a team to go just because the players don't feel like they care about them as people. And I think that's more important. So that's what's important to me. So when I got into it, like I said, when I found out this is my purpose, that's what I was. And the thing I'm never going to do, I'm never going to let my status outweigh my service. I'm here to serve these guys. Just to give you an idea, we don't have an equipment manager right now. We're in the process of hiring an equipment manager at Robert Morris University. We're going through spring ball. We didn't have, still didn't have an equipment manager. So I told the coach, I said, you guys need to coach. You guys get your positions. Let's have team meetings do what we're supposed to do. I'll take care of setting up the football field. So I was equipment manager. I did the, I did the laundry. I set the field up for the coaches. I did a, And I'm not saying that to say that I'm better than anyone. I'm saying that because I'm going to do what it takes. If it takes those guys seeing me do the field to understand the importance of being a better man, better husband, better father, and that's what it takes. That's what it boils down to. Because when I told, when I asked them, I said, guys, why do you think I did that? And I asked one of the punters, his name is George Saunders, and George said, because it needed to be done, coach. I said, exactly. You guys weren't going to do it. This is, I took on the leadership of this football team, so I had to do it because it needed to be done. And I needed the coaches to concentrate on getting you guys ready for football. So that's the thing that you're talking about. Some guys aren't willing to do that. Some guys aren't willing to take that step. But my service is always going to be more important than my status. I love that, man. Leaders eat last. Like that's the same. Like that's same. Absolutely, point. man. Like that's kind of what it is. It's like, yeah. man, guys is out there. And I love the fact that where you're coming from because it all lines up when coaches are getting into the game. And like like you said, you took it like it's coming in at $15,000. It wasn't like there's big price tags on coaching jobs like kind of is now. It's like you had to be in it for the for the kids. And like the and mm-hmm. people with coaches, I don't know, always realize like like players' bullshit meter is like very high. Like they can tell if yes. you're not like dealing with them straight up or not. Or you're just spitting jargon at them like – and a lot of times, like, that power dynamic kind of throws off if they're feeling you or not, right? So, like, everything that you're saying just kind of lines, just not kind of, it lines up perfectly to going in for the right reason and being able to, like, show some humility. Like, look, I'm setting up the field because, like, this is what we're about, and it kind of goes all the way through. Um, so when you're ascending in the coaching ranks, what did you attribute the progression to? Like, you're going from you answering in, you get a D coordinator job. I think it, it was just, like, from- pure passion. It was the passion, but it was also growing everywhere I went. Because like I told you, I wasn't a student of the game. So when I first got into coaching, that was the first thing I had to do was become a student of the game. So I would lock myself in my office 
And I, at the, my first job was defensive ends coach. So I put up every formation of the offense and lined up every formation of the defense to it. And I, and what I found out when I was in college, how I learn is by writing stuff down. And that's what I tell our guys all the time. How do you learn? I try to get our coaches to get young men to figure out how they learn. I learn by writing it down. So I got on the board and I drew the formation over and over and over, defensive formation over and over. So that's what I did. So that's how I had to learn. So I learned and I grew wherever I went. I don't care if I liked the coach or if I didn't like the coach, I took something from him because you can always be better. When I talk about my book, Better Men, Better Husbands, Better Fathers, my mission statement, you can always be better. No matter who you are, how good you think you are, you can always be better. And that's what I did. So each step I took, like prime example, when I got to Liberty my second year, uh, my, 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 my third year in coaching, that was my full-time, my first full-time coaching job was Liberty University. Like you said, I coached linebackers. I was a special teams coordinator. But the defensive coordinator, Dennis Danielson at the time, what he did was me, what he did with me was unbelievable. He made me take my individual drill more. I said, I don't really need a whole lot of individual. And then he realized the drills I was doing, he said, you don't. He said, but what are you doing that relates to the football field? He said, you're running over bags. You're doing all this other stuff. Does that relate to the football field for your linebackers? So it made me go back and look at film of my linebackers. What were they messing up at? And those were my individual drills now. The other thing Coach Danielson did for me, he prepared me to become a defensive coordinator when I got the FIU job because he would let me call the plays and scrimmages. And if I messed up, you can't call that. This is why you can't call it. So I learned and grew wherever I was. I mean, I want coaches listening, players listening, not moving up in the ranks. Like these are like critical pieces, whether you're just like grooming the next player to come up and when you're within the program to continue to like continue to learn. Because like I think when I ask the question about like the transition, that's hard. Sometimes where I see players that transition to coaches where they have a hard time is that they don't take that that level of humility or that malleability of being a coach because it's like, I, I mean, I played at the NFL. I've been here. I, I I can relate to these guys and different things like that, but like the secret sauce is to be malleable and take in all the coaching because then you can kind of mix it up with what you know. And then now it's like, now you're spinning out a different type of venom than any other coach, right? Because you have like different pixels than just somebody Absolutely, that might have studied a playbook. Here or there. And it's just like, but you have to know that there's a difference. Like kind of what you said, mm-hmm. that constant learning, man. I love that. Keep sharpening. Like uh, t- tell coaches all the time, like don't look around, man. Just keep sharpening, keep sharpening because- the proof mm-hmm. is going to be in the pudding. So when we talk about... And the other uh, thing is, what you said, though, Justin, the other thing I'll say before we go next, you have to be authentically you. You can't be anybody else. You can't... I can't try to be Coach Johnson. I'm not I'm not Coach Johnson. Never. I can only be me. So you have to be authentic. You have to learn and grow, but make sure you fit it within what you do. Got to be authentic. And that goes into the next question, man. As a head coach, what are you looking for in assistant coaches and support staff? Uh, one, you got to be on board with my mission. Uh, you have to understand what the mission is here. You have to understand that we are creating an environment on and off a football field to continue what families have done and help a young man become a better man, a better husband, and a better father. So you have to be on with the mission. The other thing that's extremely important to me is they have to be active. I'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. My first coaching job at James Madison University, defensive coordinator, and I'll tell his name because he gave me some of the greatest advice ever. His name's Bob Fellow. And I remember Bob Fellow called me in his office and he said, you need to lose weight. And I just looked at him. I said, yeah, I know I do, but why do you say that? He said, because the Bernard Clark I watched on field running down, knocking people out, did not weigh 290 pounds like you weigh right now. You need to lose weight. So I want a guy to also be active. So I want a coach to be very organized. 
I want him to be active. I want him to be disciplined in what he's doing, but I also want him to be caring. He has to be loving. I always tell my players I love them no matter what. So those are the four things I'm looking for in a coach. They got to be on my mission with five things. On my mission, got to be active, got to be caring, got to be organized, and they got to be loving. Those things are extremely important to me. That's very insightful for coaches coming up, man, because I think I think you would be surprised when you talk to assistant coaches and like what a head coach is kind of looking for and everybody's getting their 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 uh their powerpoints together and all this other stuff and it's just like hey man like what are you actually bringing to the table like what is your like what is your mission as a coach like like are you active yeah. i do think that is and i think that's something that's big what people don't understand is like whether you're a head coach or not you go into like different rooms whether it's cross functional within the organization like people are judging like the football coach or like his staff and how they look and when they show up and different things of that nature and it's i mean the game is the game right so it's Absolutely. Those are those are key points. Anything different recruiting staff and op staff? I know you said mission active fellow. I mean, well, know, recruiting recruiting and ops, we really don't that. have that. I, we don't we don't have that kind of money, just so we don't have <laughs> recruiting op staff. The coaches and the recruiters, and I got a director of football operations. Her name is Maggie. And the reason I use a young lady as opposed to a young most young men want to coach. Most young men eventually want to get into coaching. Uh-huh. Maggie wants to be a football operations director. So that's why I use her. And she's extremely diligent about what she does. She's extremely organized. And she's an accountant, which helps us because we got to keep track of our budgets and keep track of our scholarships at this level. And at your level at Penn State in Miami, somebody else is doing that. But at this level, we got to make sure she stays on top of that. So. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. I typically see, I mean, women do a great job in that role, just keeping things organized, making sure everything's buttoned up and moving it along the, the right path. The fast pace, fast pace of the industry, losing coaches and different things of that nature. How do you source um, staff members when you lose a coach or, you know, somebody on staff? I think what your father said earlier, man, uh, the best thing is the relationships. That's what this is all about, man. That's it. It's just a, it's a one of those networks where, like, prime example, I lost my, my running back coach. He took a job at Idaho State. Within two days, a buddy of mine I know from Tampa, Florida, he's a, he's a wide receiver coach at Wyoming. He reached out to him. He reached out to me. and we. So it's, it's just one of those things. It's a big network of who's coming in and who's coming out. And so that's how you get new coaches. And you can always find somebody that, you, that knows someone you're interviewing. Someone is going to know them in this business because the coaching profession is not very big. That's it, man. Working within those networks to try to preach to these guys, like build your ecosystem, man. When you're at these different places, absolutely. Not, and a lot of times people go wrong where it's just like looking for that next head coach. Like, no, man, you got to build side to side. Because I've seen a lot of guys when they become a head coach, and you don't have anybody that you want to hire on your staff because you've been kind of vouching or putting yourself out there for different people. It's like, no, you got to look for the next ops guy. You got to look for your next, you know, GA or whatever that whatever that may be. A whole roster as you're going through the ecosystem, man. Not just for yourself. I think that's a big gap. That's going to continue to be filled in. So I love that. I mean, just dealing with those relationships. So we talk about like coaches. Tell and guys, a few. The other guys I tell just too, so you'll know. Whatever staff you're on, you never know who. Like if you're a running back coach, you don't know if one of those coordinators is going to get a head job somewhere else. You're always interviewing. How you come to work is extremely important. You are always interviewing. If you're always, coach is always telling you, hey, man, because during the season, we wear collar shirts and slacks. You know, that's what we wear. I, I believe in that. When the school's in, we're going to wear collar shirts and slack. That's just how I always dress. I want everybody to dress that way. You can wear jeans. I just want to make sure the nice jeans and not anything alone. But no shorts, no joggers, no nothing like that. Collar shirts and slack. You can wear more slacks with sneakers. I understand. It's not a problem. But we want to make sure. That's how we dress. 
But if you're coming to work, if you're always on your cell phone, someone's always got to find you and stuff like that, that could be an issue. So if a coach gets a job and you say, hey, man, take him with you, probably not going to take you with him because he's seen your work ethic. And it's been a situation where I've talked to you about it on several occasions or another coach has talked to you about it. I'm just saying in general, I'm just using myself. And so that's what I'm saying. So just make sure you're interviewing every day. That goes for players too. Because like a lot of players, like whether at Robert Morris or whether at Penn State, like they want to get into coaching one day and like feel like you can operate like a player. And I'm like, no, like they're looking to see if you can make that transition too. Like how much are you a student of the game when you're coming to school? Like are you coming into the building and talking to me about the game? Like if you want to be the, in the GA spot that if you don't go to the NFL and you can use those critical advantages of playing college football and making that transition. So the advice is good for assistant coaches and players that want to transition into the game because – you're being evaluated by the time you get into the recruiting process, man. Trust me, because I've seen information come up on guys when they're going to the NFL and they were 16, 17 years old. So it sticks with you. The football ecosystem is small. Absolutely. So what's the so like when you say that, what's the major, I guess, key for all assistants that you should know before jumping into that head coach seat? You know what I mean, we get a lot of assistant coaches like, I want to be a head coach, you know what I mean? But you become the head man. There's like a lot of different administrative th- administrative tasks. There's different, you know, different people that you got to answer to. What's the main difference where your focus was like as an assistant coach? Like, all right, I got my guys. And then when you're a head coach, it's like, I got to deal with this. I guess what would those I think the, the thing is exactly, it's exactly what you said, Justin, earlier on. I put guys in position that I can trust and I believe in. They believe in what I believe in. My offensive line coach, Coach Rod Holder, we went in together at University of Miami. We played together at University of Miami. We were the 85 class together. So I've been knowing Rod for 35 years. So I know Rod's going to do his job. You want to bring guys in, you feel comfortable doing their job. Because like you said, you want to, as you're going through the ranks, you're looking around to see who's going to be my offensive coordinator, who's going to be my defensive coordinator, who's going to be my O-line coach, who's going to be my ops person. You're finding those people you can trust along the way. Because once you put them in position as a head coach, there are days that I'm dealing with stuff that I can't deal with. Like, for example, if I was calling a defense and I didn't have a defense coordinator, well, who would have did the equipment this spring? So I got to put myself in position to take care of those little things like that as a head coach to meet with the AD. I got to meet with the AD today. Okay, I got to meet with this committee because we're, we're hiring a new AD because at one point we're hiring a new AD. I had to meet with that committee so I couldn't be in the, always be in the offensive meetings room or the, or the team meeting room. So our offensive coordinator had to run it or our defense go. And when my father passed away and I had to go and bury my dad my associate head coach, who's my O-line coach holder, I knew he, I was in good hands leaving the team with him. So you want to make sure you're finding the right people along the way and putting those right positions. Because as a head coach, you'll be pulling a lot of different rec- – I know some head coaches call plays. I don't think I would want to do it because I want to make sure it's done efficiently. I want to make sure it's done organized, and that's how I would do it. I think that's a great point, man, just understanding like that trust factor. When guys are like, trying to look for those different jobs, understanding who you're – where your squad is and where you can kind of fit in and where you provide value to be completely honest. And like, keep saying it, like where you, where you trust people, everybody kind of gets that thing and just throwing cars here or there. It's like, you gotta actually build your, build relationships with people and like kind of understand how you work because when it's in the fire, you know, that's where coaches are leaning on like when that happens. So like as guys are moving up through the ranks, man, look around and see what ops guys, what assistant coaches that you want to take with you and kind of shape out the culture of your staff as you're on your way up. Cause you see a lot of times when guys get to the top and don't really know how to put a staff together, right? And it's just kind of, exactly. I'm here now, I just got to roll with it. So when you're recruiting at 
Well, not recruiting, but we see a discrepancy with black coaches getting a nod at head coaching jobs or leadership roles across the whole industry. Do you have any solution-based ideas around the issue? Like seeing as you're one of the few that made it to like that head coach role in college football? I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, Justin. I, I think the situation is exactly what I talked about earlier. It's relationships. And to put it as bluntly as I can, black people know black people and white people know white people. That's usually the circles that you run in. And the other situations we fall into is black people and black coaches. We're not monolithic. We're not cut from the same stone. We do things differently. And a lot of times you get into that, he can coach this or I need a minority coach. Let's just find the best coach. Let's just find a guy that can get the job done. Let's get each other. Let's network more. And I think that's what the situation is because you need more black ADs in order to have more black head coaches because that's what you're up against. Because if a job comes available and the AD is white, how many actual black candidates does he actually know? Because I just told you it's relationship-based. So how many relationships does he actually have with black coaches along the way? Or does he have more relationships with white coaches along the way? It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with culture. It has to do with your relationship that you're building. Are you building those relationships to find those candidates that you're looking for? And I think that's where it comes in. And like I said, we get called in a monolithic situation where they think all of us do everything the same. Well, this coach, he couldn't do it, so he couldn't do it. And I always tell people this, and this is America. This isn't just black people. This isn't white people. When a Muslim person does something, it's all Muslims. When a black person does something, it's all black people. When it's a Mexican person does something, it's all Mexicans. When a white person does something, it's just that white person. Chris Rock said it best. The world become equal when black men can mess up just as much as white men and still get hired. And, and that's what it boils down to. Let's just get stop getting caught up in a situation where this is this and this is that. Let's just hire the best guy for the job. But let's build relationships with each other in order to hire that best guy. I think that's a that's a critical piece. I mean, it just kind of it kind of spearheaded the reason why I started my business with football, LIG Sports Group, with football operations strategy consulting group, kind of hitting those critical points. Whether it's helping those head coaches find and make the best decisions, whether it's with your op staff or your recruiting uh, op staff, but your assistant coaches and having like who are the best, right? Kind of evaluating assistant coaches and off the field personnel the same way we evaluate high school players. So like that's kind of one of the services that we provide and also working with a group called, which we're talking about with the culture, right? Like black whites called OG culture, one global culture with um, mm -hmm. coach Roger Harriet, the head coach at St. Thomas Aquinas and uh, <clears throat> James Walker. But it's pretty much a think tank venue where we're going to do uh, different things with head coaches, decision makers at the NFL level where they have a think tank and kind of pretty much stripping down, you know, the, the different biases and things so people can have a pure basis of, working in football together so they have a comfortability and kind of eliminating the difference and kind of conjoining the different ecosystems because like that is the problem that we see right positions open and it's like does anybody have a guy and if it's like the same six people looking at the, the same Absolutely. six people's friends it's like all right, it's all the same but like if you start combining those different networks and different things like that in a proactive aspect feel like we could start making some leeway, but I think you're, I mean, you're a hundred percent right on where that is and what needs to continue to move forward because it being such a fast paced industry, you're right. People are like, who, you know, who you got? And it's just leaning mm -hmm. on your people and not really opening up that spec for finding the right coaches and ops people. Cause mm -hmm. I think you're on it a hundred percent, man. So recruiting at Robert Morris, the scope is limited, right? So I mean, depending on who you can, mm -hmm. you can't just go after everybody. 
what are the main traits that you're looking for in players that drive success in the culture? That you're I think we're looking for the same traits that Power Five. I think we're looking for the same traits that Power Fives are looking for. Uh, we got to watch film. We're still looking for speed. We're still looking for size. All those things. Uh, just to give you an idea, our recruiting base or how we look at. It, we got a 70-30 situation that we look at. 70% of our guys are going to be captains on the team. They're going to be starters. They're going to play multiple sports. Uh, they're going to have above a 3.0 GPA, uh, come from a stable family uh, household. That's 70% of our guys. That's what we're looking for. And obviously, they can play football. Uh, 30%, one of those things are missing. So as we go into the film, we're looking for the same thing. Is a guy going to be a step sore? But we got to, let's say we're looking at a six foot five offensive lineman and he's fluid in the hips and he can bend and do everything. We're probably not going to get him. But if he's a little stiff, you know, a little sluggish, we might be able to get him and create the player that we want out of him and maybe move him inside the guard but still have a six-foot-five guy that can play guard. So we still look for those things. Or we find a guy who's all fluid in the hips and everything else off his line. He's probably going to be about six one, six two. But we got a shot at that guy. But he's a mauler. We want that guy. That's the guy we're looking for. Defensive end, he's six-foot tall, but he's quick off the ball, knows how to use his hands, got a great get-off. We can get that guy. We can get him to about 210 pounds and use the speed off the edge. So we look for things like that, a little undersized, but still all the other abilities that power fives are looking for. Absolutely. So pretty much same same critical factors, different specific skills per se, like the critical factors that still need to be there at defensive mm-hmm. end or offensive line, but it might be a little smaller, might be not as quick in terms of the specific, you know, let's say, the option, the option uh, details, <laughs> like the size Absolutely. of the meal. But, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. So now we get into the little bit of the, the transfer portal. Like the college landscape is shifting. I mean, at a place like Robert Morris, how do you feel about the transfer portal? Do you, do you utilize it a lot? Uh, we do and we don't. And if I utilize it, to be totally honest with you, we don't go out the power five guys. Uh, and it's hard for us to go out the FBS guys, period. I'll tell you why. Some schools do. But I realize that they're coming from the penthouse <laughs> to government housing when they're coming, coming from a power five. We bring a guy from Alabama to here. You're riding buses now. You're not on a, you're not getting prime rib for every meal. You know, we're doing what we can. You, you, you're still eating good, but you're not doing that all the time, you know, and things like that don't happen. And that was the first conversation I have. So we're looking at more FCS guys, um, maybe a group of five guys. Uh, Division two guys, Division three guys, the guys we're looking for, and we're utilizing transfer portal. Transfer portal doesn't bother me at all. I just want guys to be smart when they do it. If a young man comes to me after his freshman year and say, "Coach, I want to go in the portal," I want to know why, and not why in the sense that I made you upset. Why a plan? Because you know, and I know, right now there's a thousand guys in the portal. There's seven hundred of them that aren't going to get picked up. And we're talking about FBS guys that aren't getting picked up. So if you jump in there as an FCS guy, are you going to get picked up? And so that's where it comes into play. So I'm trying to figure out, do you have a plan? That That's why I'm coming to you. Have you even gotten used to the school? And on top of that, you're leaving. Let's be honest. When you go home and talk to your mom, your dad, and whoever you're talking to is giving you this information about you going in the portal, they're not talking about your education. They're talking about your playing time. So how many credits are going to transfer to the next school you're going to so you're still on track to graduate from college? Or are you just worried about you're going to get some more playing time? Because if you don't get playing time there, then what happens? Because all those things are going to go into place. So I have a long conversation with them. If it's a grad transfer, to be honest with you, Jess, it's one of them situations I'm like, hey, man, you've done everything you need to do for us. You've busted your behind, and you've got your college degree. What do you want me to help you go? 
I'll do everything I can to help you go because you've done everything that we've asked you to do at Robert Morris University. So it all depends on where they are and what they're going through and stuff like that. We bring first in. We had three transfers in this weekend. We really, really, really want from FBS schools, but they're all grad transfers. So I'm excited about getting them here because they're going to bring a leadership ability also along with that physical and dominant presence that they can have. They're also going to bring a leadership ability that we also need for our team. So it's a mixed bag when it comes to me about the transfer portal. I'm not upset at it because people have been transferring for years. You know, Troy Aikman transferred from Oklahoma to UCLA. You know, Cleveland Gary transferred from Georgia to the University of Miami. So we've been transferring for years. It's the way it's being done now and how easily accessible it is. And I think it's hurting young men because they're getting some bad advice. So I'd say before you leave, let's get some good advice and find out exactly why you're leaving and be honest with yourself and say, am I leaving because of the football? Am I leaving for the grades? And are my grades going to transfer to keep me eligible two, three, and four years down the road? Coach, that was a great comprehensive answer about the transfer portal, man, because a lot you're talking about a lot of things that people don't really look at when they're getting into it. Because I try to tell people it's not a it's not a bargaining chip, man. It's a it's a lifeline. If everything kind of checks out and like that's the only place you need to go, that's when you jump in those waters, man. Transitioning mm-hmm. schools is not for the faint of heart. It's a whole different culture, it's a whole different staff, and mm-hmm. there's just a lot of things in it, man. So like coach is hundred percent right. And make sure that their grades are transferring because they please do not go through this college football process and not Get your degree. Absolutely not. We're going to get everything out of you. So make sure you get everything out of it. Everything out of you. We're going to get everything we can out of you. (laughs) (laughs) All of it. Man. So for with that being said, for athletes that want to transition into a career in football, ops, coaching, marketing, whatever they want to do, what can they do while they're playing? Uh, What I said before, be committed to the process and understand that that's exactly what it is. But while they're here – when those scouts come in, hey, get their card, make connections with them. You know, we had a great resource when we had uh, Kevin Colbert. You know, Kevin Colbert, the GM for the Steelers, he's a Robert Morris grad. So Kevin would stop by and the guys would talk to him, and that was a great uh, resource for us. So I tell the guys, get a card here, get a card there. Come to me, and I'll make sure I can make some connections. There's some guys I know that are in the scouting world right now. I'll reach out to them and say, hey, can you talk to one of my players you think about becoming a scout? Absolutely, Coach. So come to me. I'll do everything I can to help my guys. There's no doubt about it. Once they graduate, I'm not finished with them because, like I said, when you're trying to create better men, better husbands, better fathers, you can't be done with them once they graduate. you got to be able to do that letter of recommendation. you got to be able to help them out in some way or another because that's what you said you do for them. I love that, man. Just like we talk about that with players when they go to school, like makes like look around at that staff. Like, do you think they'll help you? Or is that school? Will they hire you to come back there to work there when you're done playing? Like, how are they viewing it? And Kevin Culver, he's he's somebody that gave me a lot of critical advice throughout my career. Somebody that's kind of been uh, close. So that's that's funny that you say that. He came up. He always gives great advice. Um, so let's talk about your book a little bit. Ascension, a coach's guide to becoming a better man, husband and father. What inspired you to write it? Uh, two things inspired me. Do uh, you have kids, by the way, Justin? I do. I have an eight-year-old daughter, Carson. Okay. You have a daughter. Every man sits down with his daughter and he says to her, look, I want you to wait until you're married. Matter of fact, I don't want you to do anything until you're 35. You can't get married until you're 35. I don't <laughs> want you to even talk, uh, talk to or look at a man like me. I was no good. I don't want you to be involved with a man like me. I don't want anything along those lines. Why don't you do that same thing with your son and say to your son, your body's precious. You can't be having sex. You can't be a dog like me. Save yourself until you're married. Understand these things. 
Men have those conversations with their daughters all the time, telling them how body, how precious their bodies are. It's a temple of God. Your body is sacred. You got to carry it as such. But we don't have those conversations with our young men. That's the first thing. The second thing, one of the schools I was at, and I was talking to a young man, and we were having a conversation. He actually played the NFL probably about five years, and him and I were talking. He said, Coach, I want to be a virgin until I'm married. And I kind of looked at him, set me back a little bit. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, Coach, there's no doubt. He said, because, Coach, I probably think about sex more than you do. He said, the difference is if I give it away, I've lost it forever, and I don't have to give it to my wife. And he saw his body as sacred, and he saw his body as a, a temple of God. And that's why I wrote it, because I want young men to also understand that your body is also sacred. It's precious. It's a temple of God. And you can't just keep sleeping with woman after woman after woman after woman and be okay with that. You've got to get to know her. You've got to know who she is. And it's not a book about sex. It's a book about self-love. It's about coming to love yourself as a man and understanding the importance of being pure and staying pure. If it's until you're married, it's great. But at least until you meet the right woman and you know her last name. <laughs> you don't let her drive your car. I mean, that's the, that's the whole crazy thing about it. I mean, there's this situation. I'm, I'm talking about myself, Justin. Trust me. There's this situation. You're with a woman. You don't know her last God. name. You would never let her drive your car. You wouldn't leave her in your house alone, but you'll have sex with her. That is the dumbest <laughs> thing in the world. So that's why I wrote the book. Wow. <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's a great reason to write the book, especially like everything that you said with your mission. I love when everything lines up, right? You talk about on and off the field. And like when we talk about sports, like at least sports, you played at the U, you went to the NFL, you've seen it. And like, this is something that like throws guys off of their path, whether it's like throwing their guys off their path or their dream of football or just a level of self-love. Man, we see a lot of times where people kind of fill up the different buckets of self-love or the different holes that they may have with the sport, whatever that identity that comes with the sport, whether it's the fast clubs, whether it's the fast women or whatever that thing is, but kind of keeping it to that point of like, no, this is self-love and like beyond the sport of your body taking care of yourself and all those different things, but like a level of like loving yourself, right? Absolutely. Like to continue to move forward. I, I mean, I, I love that. Yeah. Especially and, in the sport of football where... <laughs> yeah, man. You know and I know. It's a high, high level of nonsense going on in the sport of football when it comes to that. But there's an example I give in the book, and it's how we think and how men think and what causes one to think like the other. I'm talking to a group of college kids, and I just literally happened, and I'm having a conversation with them about abstinence because once I gave my life to Christ, I started practicing abstinence. I'm married to my wife right now, but we were sexually active before we got married, and then I stopped because I started practicing abstinence when I for my first coaching job, so I stopped. But I'm having a conversation with a group of college kids, and this is the conversation I'm having with them, and the room is mostly filled with women, and so I posed a question to them. I said, you meet a young man. He takes you out for three months. And for three months, he kisses you on the cheek when he comes back home. He's treating you like a gentleman. He's buying, he's paying for dinner. He's opening the door. He's doing everything a guy is supposed to do to show you that he cares about you and he wants to be interested with you. Just every time he takes you home, he kisses you on the cheek. So after three months, if that's all he's done, what's the first thing you're thinking? And in unison, Justin, in unison, every woman in that room said he's gay. I said, okay. Second thing. <laughs> he's bad in bed okay what's the third thing what's wrong with me as a woman that he hasn't tried me and on the other hand the guys are thinking the same thing because you as a man if i take a girl out that many times if i don't try something soon she gonna think i'm gay if i don't try something soon she gonna <laughs> think i ain't got the right package or i'm bad in bed 
if I don't try something soon, she's going to think something's wrong with her. So the way we think about our bodies has really transformed over to how women look at their bodies because when we don't try something, they think something's wrong with them. And if we don't try something, we think something's wrong with us. So it just becomes a vicious cycle. So that's the reason for the book. And I just, it, it God driven because I never thought I'd write a book. It was literally the furthest thing from my mind. It's truly God driven. It's just something God put on my heart to teach people self-love. I, I, I love that. And like you said, when it's put on your heart by God, it's like you walk through different paths that you're not expecting to or you wouldn't choose on your own. That's how, that's the confirmation of it, right? Absolutely. Like, no doubt. Hey, I'm writing this book about, you know, <laughs> like, so I, I mean, I love that, especially like you talk about like the sport that kind of enhances it a little bit. Like, I mean, I think of football kind of kind of reshaping guys' mentality of almost like a training dog because it's like you're you're kind of trained to like react see mm-hmm. see react see react and it's like you're kind of transitioning out it's like I right, know take put like three more steps in between there before you like before you go because especially when you get to the NFL or playing in a an environment like Miami where it's like it becomes see ball get ball and like that becomes life like see go see go see go absolutely and so being able to put those different steps in like why you're putting those steps in there it's critical. So I love to hear that coming from a head coach, especially with your mission being your mission. The funny Everything thing that is, we talked about, man. What's your I career end goal? My career end goal. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. I'll tell you the funny thing is like when I finished the book and, you know, I sent it out to some of my boys, everybody hit me back. Bro, I'm not in this book, Emma. Hey, I ain't got nothing to do with this book. I'm like, <laughs> I said, man, nobody's in the book. Nobody's in This is strictly about me and my life. Nobody's in the book. Don't worry about it, man. I ain't tell no secrets on anybody. So it was kind of funny. My, my end goal, no, no, it, it's, it's my mission no tell statement, all. Justin. Yeah, it's, it's my mission statement. That, that's my end goal. Uh, when I was trying to become a head coach and my wife, um, I told her when I first got my first assistant job, I said, hey, babe, by the time I'm 50, I want to be a head coach. And on December 2017, I got the job at Robert Morris University. On January 12, 2018, I turned 50. And along the way, if I applied for a head job, she reminded me that I said I would wait. That was the time I'm 50 is when God was going to put me in a position to be a head coach. And she would remind me. of. And what I learned a long time ago is my dream can never become a distraction. My dream of being a head coach became a distraction every now and then. I lost focus of growing and learning like I did before. So I had to grow and learn. So once God put me in this position, I knew he was putting me in the right position because I had grown and learned along the way. So what I want to do is help these young men grow and learn. And the mission statement's not going to change. So that's my end game. So my end game is 20 years from now, I want more guys call them and say, hey, coach, I want you to be the godfather of my child. Hey, coach, I want you coming to my wedding. I want you to meet my fiance. Hey, coach, what you said to me changed my life. That's my end goal. So my end goal to me may last 20 years from now when I'm still getting calls from my players telling me how much they love me and me telling them how much I love them. I absolutely love that. Grow and learn throughout the whole process. Like you said, like there's no true end goal to that. Like the mission is the end goal to like walk it out on a daily basis and continue to put that out there, man. Like, this is a great episode, man. Coach Coach Clark, really appreciate you coming in and sharing your stories from, you know, the times at the U, making those transitions, understanding everything that needs to go into the football ecosystem, whether it's like the discrepancy with black coaches, how to move up as a coach, how you need to be fit as an assistant coach and can continue to put yourself out there in the best light. And we talk about the ascension, a coach's guide, 
to becoming a better man, husband, and father, a guide of self-love for young men to kind of go through this process and understand like the value that they have, that their body is a temple. And, you know, with the career end goal, continue to grow and learn. Like this goes right into the LIG, uh, you know, form of what we're trying to do is like educate and empower these athletes to continue to maximize this process and use this critical point as a, as a, a leaping, as a leaping uh, field. Um, so Thank you for that. Like and subscribe this interview. And when you guys get a chance, check out the Recruiting and Football Biz Masterclass along with Coach's book. We'll put a link in the description to this episode. Again, thank you, Coach Clark, for jumping on to the Blueprints of Success interview series. Crazy gems on here. So we really definitely appreciate that. But that's it, man. We appreciate thank you, it. Thank, thank you very you. much, Justin. I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Blue Chip Academy. To help navigate the recruiting waters, LIG Sports Group put together a Blue Chip Recruiting Checklist. Download your checklist at LIGsports.com Blue Chip Academy to ensure you're making informed decisions through this process. Hit subscribe and check out the LIG Sports Group Football Ops and Recruiting YouTube channel, where we'll talk about the recruiting and other critical points in the football ecosystem. If you're feeling stressed, confused, or just want help putting together a blue chip blueprint for you and your son, don't hesitate to book a console call with me at LIGsports.com backslash Blue Chip Academy. Remember, everyone has a different journey. Keep sharpening and remember that you can only go to one school. Just make sure that you have your blue chip blueprint together and execute it. Life is good.